Hello, everybody, and welcome back to this episode of The Conversational. Today, I am here with Amy Ostreicher. She is a PTSD specialist, an Audio Award-nominated playwright, performer, and multidisciplinary creator. She is a sought-after trauma-informed teaching artist, which is a title I've never heard before, but it's going to make a ton of sense to you when you hear from her. She's an author a writer for the Huffington Post, an international keynote speaker, an RAINN representative and health advocate. She's given three TEDx talks on transforming trauma through creativity. And interestingly enough, she holds the record for the only woman to give TEDx talks for three consecutive years. That's pretty cool because that's a hard thing to do. She's been featured keynote speaker for national conferences, including the Pacific Rim Conference of Diversity and Disability, the International School of Social Work Conference, and Women of Resilience. Makes a lot of sense knowing your story. She's toured uh, her autobiographical musical, easy for me to say, Gutless and Grateful, to over 200 venues. She's currently developing her full-length play, Flicker and a Firestarter, on the dichotomies that emerge after trauma. And More Than Ever Now, which is a play based on her grandmother's story of survival. She most recently premiered her one-woman multimedia musical called Passageways at Here Art Center, for which she created music, book, lyrics, and artwork. She's also recently published her memoir, My Beautiful Detour, An Unthinkable Journey from Gutless to Grateful. So... I'm looking at her. She's ridiculously young, and um, her bio goes on and on, and it's super (laughs) impressive. So thank you, Amy, for agreeing to join me here. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. Uh, I am so excited to get your story. Um, I I know a little bit about it. I've seen a couple of your interviews, and I haven't read your whole book, but I have read little passages from it. And, of course, I know your mother. This is how we knew each other. And uh, (laughs) it's your... Before we get into sort of the the meat, I I think it would be interesting for people to kind of get grounded in just who you are and your background. So tell us a little bit about, you know, how you grew up. Obviously, your your parents play a big role in your life, but also your grandparents, since you have devoted uh, a piece of of work to your grandmother. So will you give us a little background? Right. Well, I grew up right around here, actually, in uh, Fairfield, uh, Connecticut. And I had a really uh, nice childhood. Um, I had three really supportive brothers, and obviously you know my mother um, and my father. And I was really raised knowing that um, creativity uh, was a really big passion of mine, and I was very uh, supported to to follow that creativity uh, wherever it led. So I grew up just loving musical theater. That was my world. It was always how I just connected to the outside world around me. For me, it wasn't just being on stage and playing a role. It was being on stage and I can tell a story uh, through someone else's voice. Um, so I think that always... Um, gave me this magical kind of superpower feeling as a kid, like, wow, you know, I feel so connected to all the stories around me. So it just, uh, it made me grow up um, very curious about the world. Um, Did your mom, was your, I I know you, I think your dad is more like numerically driven. Is that right? He's a doctor. Oh, he's a doctor, yeah, but more. I guess I was thinking more science and numbers and analytics. Yeah, so I guess I had that from him and, um, and plus his kind of sarcasm and humor <laughs> was always good. Um, and then my mother, um, she always says, you know, she wasn't an artist, but she always loved creativity and music. So 
growing up in the house, I knew all of the old Barbra Streisand movies, <laughs> and that was how I grew up, too, um, singing along with her albums. But um, I remember, you know, my mother would take me to my three brothers, like, sports games growing up, and she would always give me, like, a creativity kind of craft kit to, like, to do. do it, do on the lawn or something, so... I remember always kind of being able to pull out that creativity out of my back pocket, and it was so she kind of was. And what about? I know you, you, you in your bio, you are you're dedicating um, some work to your grandmother. How did how did your grandparents play into your development? A, a huge part of my development. You know, I was lucky that my grandparents, you know, they lived in Queens and they came to visit all the time. And growing up, I knew that my grandmother was a Holocaust survivor. You know, obviously that means more to you as you learn more about it yeah. um, growing up. Um, and it was so interesting for me growing up with her because she was always this positive, generous, warm person. And obviously, as I was able to really understand what the Holocaust was and what my grandmother had survived, you know, at 18, she was a prisoner of Auschwitz, um, really, really perplexed me. How, how could she be so generous and giving? And then I realized, you know, it was that kind of spirit that enabled her to survive. Um, so that, that obviously meant more to me as I went through my own traumas. But growing up, it, it really um, it grounded me in what's important in life, no matter what. Yeah, so. it's a well, well, we'll get on a little bit to, you know, as we get sort of into your more professional yeah. career about what you're doing kind of in her honor. But <laughs> but it's um, kind of knowing a little bit about your story. And I think what you're about to reveal it it makes a lot of sense now that how, why you're so successful and why you thrive the way that you do, given all that you've encountered, because you've got such great role models like your grandmother. It's a, it's really an amazing thing. So we know you're, you love, you know, you're the artist piece. So let's like fast forward a little bit got to <laughs> like high school and can, you know, so kind of bring me through there. Well, how did, what happened there and how did you think about your career and what you were going to do next? And, you know, what, what did you stumble into? Right. Well, high school, I always felt really lucky because I thought, wow, it is so cool that I'm so focused and driven and know exactly where my life is going to go. Which is super yeah. unique. Most kids right. don't, right? Yeah. No, I really had a really uh, very diligent work ethic. I loved, I always loved learning um, and I loved theater. So I knew whatever I wanted to do, it was going to be something in musical theater and something where I could keep creating. And so theater and the arts just seemed like the perfect vehicle. I mean, I lo I remember loving AP Bio because I remember looking at the diagrams of the cell and I'm like, oh my God, Lippy, like bilayer and, and look at how all those cells go back and forth. I'm like, that's like a dance in action. Oh so I was always seeing the creativity in everything. behind everything. So I think high school, I had this very odd mix of this childlike wonder and this um, kind of old soul kind of um, philosophical approach 
uh, that made me love theater and also made me look uh, for role models in my life, which is you know how I encountered you know my first trauma in high school. Yeah. Um, if, if no, you- right. I do. No, absolutely. Because I, given that you were so focused, I know. And I again, I know. I happen to know your mom well, but <laughs> I, I know that they're very supportive of you and and your brothers as well, and all of your musical and artistic endeavors. So you had they helped to to support you with with extra uh, music coaches, and is that. Right through high school was that? Did you start that earlier or before even? Right. Um, well, I had always um, studied with voice teachers um, yeah. growing up, and I had um, a voice teacher in Connecticut, and I was I was the kind of person that was so focused on everything, so I knew exactly what I wanted to work on in my voice. So I remember coming to him with a ten page list. And how old were you? Uh, I was 15. 15, okay. Um, with a 10-page list of vocal goals. <laughs> wow. And he looked at me, he's like, you know what, that is really admirable, but I can't help you with this. I I got to give you to my voice teacher. And so that was how I ended up seeing uh, my first really professional a voice coach in New York that coached all the Broadway stars. And I was kind of initiated into this whole world of like professional musical theater. Um, so I started studying with this other voice teacher in New York when I was 15. And really, he ended up becoming my mentor because I found that not only did he know all the cool, like, up-and-coming musical theater stuff, but he was really the first person that understood that kind of old soul quality in me that loved, like, poetry and philosophy and, and the deeper meaning behind why I love theater. Right. And so he became, you know, really kind of my mentor. Um, And I studied seriously with him for two years. And then when I was 17, you know, I was sexually abused by him, which kind of catapulted me into a whole other world. How did that? So I so you were 17. So you were were you a senior in high school? Is that right? it started the the spring of my junior year of high school of and it lasted for uh, many months yes and so you know i don't want to go into the gory details got of it, it. but when you <laughs> uh, so i i you know i can't imagine when you're you're that young so first of all you're full of dreams and hope you're right. focused i mean unlike you know certainly i could have said my I, myself my kids you, you knew exactly what you wanted to do you were putting in all kinds of extra time and the voice coaches this person you looked up to and then you, you know you there's been so much that has gone on especially we've seen like the gymnastics thing right. that has blown up in recent years is it what was it like did it happen suddenly was did was it obvious to you that this was wrong did it just seem like well was there a trusting thing because i know that there's especially with people that are close to you it's right. sometimes it's not like a stranger coming up and which is like you know that's bad it's there's it, was it what was that like right well it's interesting you bring up you know the gymnastics and the me too movement you know at this time 2005 none of that was really right. you know big like people didn't talk about this or at least like kind of sheltered you know Jewish girls in Connecticut we didn't talk about this yeah. um so and i was also very sheltered and kind of naive for my age um so when it first happened i didn't even realize it was happening and i didn't know anything about ptsd or mental health at that time i didn't realize that really i had gone out of body and dissociated at at that time i just thought like wow, suddenly I'm kind of a space cadet. And I I 
I couldn't even associate what was happening to this change I felt inside me. So I just figured, oh, wait, there's something wrong with me. What what happened? Mm-hmm. And that's usually where the survivor guilt and blame comes from, even right. though I didn't know what to attribute it to. So I kept going back to lessons thinking like, you know, I'm just you know, foggy, I don't know what's going on. Um, And so the outside world, you know, saw this change in me too. They didn't understand what's going on. So really my junior to senior year was really, um, really an anxious, terrible time for me where suddenly I felt kind of outcast from the world and I couldn't even put my finger on what was going on and I couldn't talk about it because I didn't know. So my parents didn't know, my family didn't know. So that was really just a real blur of a time for me. Especially somebody like you who was so, you had full of so much confidence. So driven and so much direction. Absolutely. Right. To suddenly, I'm sure that everybody around you saw this and just was trying to figure it out. How did you eventually come to terms with what was happening and why? How did that How did that manifest itself finally? Well, it's interesting. Um, and it's a moment I can so uh, specifically remember, which is why it's in you know the musical I wrote in my book, which you know, I can talk about. But I remember you know my way of coping. I could sense I could sense the moment something was wrong inside because I would always um, take nature walks and connect with the trees. Like trees were kind of my guiding path since I was a kid. And I remember for one of my nature walks, something wasn't clicking. Like I would always look at the trees and feel this connection and and my inner life. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't find that inner life anymore. And so all I could focus on, I couldn't feel my heart. I could just feel my feet. So I just focused on, oh my God, I'm just going to feel my feet moving. And everything just became very mechanical and and rhythmic. Um, and so that was the first change I could felt like I can't feel my heart. And so I remember I was in Barnes and Nobles one day and, and that was really how I just coped in the world, just like walking and walking through aisles. And one day I saw this big yellow book you know, pop out at me. Um, And I just happened to pick it up. And it was the book, uh, The Courage to Heal, um, which is a big, you know, guidebook for survivors of assault. And I remember the exact moment I ended up taking the book, you know, out of the aisle and looking at it. And I remember seeing the subtitle and it said, for survivors of sexual abuse. And I remember looking at that and laughing because that title seemed as crazy to me as like, oh, for homicide. Martians, right, yeah. <laughs> or whatever. And so I, I put it back like, that's, what am I doing? But then I ended up going back and taking the book out because something obviously connected. connected. Mm-hmm. And randomly, I ended up opening to the page of symptoms and I saw, you know, the checkboxes, like, I feel numb, I don't trust myself anymore, um, I'm nervous, I, you know, feel different. And that was really, like, my Hallmark movie moment where as I'm scrolling through, I'm like, oh, wow, maybe that is me. Um, so I feel like I was meant to find that. And then from then on, it really felt like, oh, boy, I'm carrying this knowledge and secret that I don't know what to do with. And so for a few more months, I I felt like I was holding a secret inside until finally, and this wasn't till 
April of my senior year. So it's been a whole year now. Yeah, right. and, and the abuse was still going on. I just didn't know what to do with it. Um, I ended up writing a letter to my high school saying, something's just not right, and I need two months off from school to just heal. And I was always so academically driven, and even the headmaster could tell something was wrong with me. So they just said, you know what? Amy knows what she needs. Give her some months <laughs> off. And then I remember telling my mom, like, you know what? For two months, I just want to go to the beach with you and walk and talk. And again, my mom has no clue what's right. going on. And so it was April of my senior year. And finally, um, I finally just kept walking and walking with her and it just came out. And that was obviously, you know, my mother. Yeah. So it was a lot. She took it well for any mother, but it was a lot for her. Oh. And then of course. we couldn't and, heal her anything because then... Well, she feels guilty, I'm sure, too, because it's like, why couldn't I have seen this? Why couldn't... I mean, it's... Of it's course. To your point, the survivor's guilt, it's it's not... Right. It's spread around. It affects everybody, all the people around you. Right. So I talk a lot about, on the podcast, holy shit moments or hoshimos. This was clearly yeah. a, a yeah, massive one. <laughs> yeah. So both what happened to you, but also... I, I love this sort of finding this book and for yeah. whatever reason it stuck out to you and you were driven back to it. And so some on sub, some subconscious level, clearly you knew that there was something that was right, right about that. So how did you end up, you know, confronting or what what happened that w that ended the abuse finally and allowed you to sort of move past it? So you talked to your mom. Right. That was step one. What happened? Confronting is is a funny word sometimes, especially well, not funny, but in sexual assault, because, um, you know, for years after, I thought like a final confrontation was needed. For closure. And <laughs> right, for closure, whatever that is. And eventually I learned that the best confrontation or revenge or moving on is really being able to, to live your life. Um, my uh, final resolution was kind of detoured because... Right after, immediately, my mom and I were like, okay, what is our plan? You know, I have to get therapy. I have to do all of this. Um, and Passover was coming up. So our first step was, you know what, we are going to uh, reclaim this holiday for ourselves. We are going to celebrate kind of in my grandmother's, you know, my grandmother was still alive. But that's what she did to, to get through. And this was going to be our way of, you know, starting our lives now. And that was two weeks later, and you know, the night of our Passover Seder, that's when I had a really bad stomach ache, and then medical chaos ensued, and the sexual abuse closure got a little uh, put off uh, for the time being. Yeah, did it? Did he? I mean, and I'm sure it's funny. There's a couple of things going through my head. One, I, yeah. I had another um, podcast episode with a woman named Jennifer Gilbert, mm -hmm. and she'd been not sexually assaulted, but assaulted, so uh -huh. stabbed multiple times, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, thirty-eight times with a screwdriver and her her parting words and it's it it feels very similar to what you've just said is that um you know it's she felt like the it wasn't in the struggle um you know or in the fight wasn't where she was going to find her peace or her freedom it was in just basically accepting it it was in you know it was in the ability to just give yourself up to it um and I, I think that there's something to that because I think from the outside we all want to we all want to see justice, right? We want to say like fight against this thing, and sometimes the best thing for the person is to is to let go of that anger and that fight, right? Well, and just yeah, 
sit back. No, go ahead. Well, one thing about that, it is like mourning a loss, like the five stages of grief. You know, you go through the bargaining and acceptance and the anger, you know, and all of that where you're like, yeah, I'm going to get revenge because I have to do this. And then, you know, no, it didn't really have. Eventually, the best way to move on and to forgive and to reclaim your own life is finally when you do find that place of acceptance yeah. and with anything right. so we Take all have to go through that healthy grieving process so just any trauma it's so true and it's and it says something that you were able to at such a young age kind of come to that but yeah, it took time it took well, time of course but still I, I it's it's i think it's hard it's it's you should be given more credit as a young person to be able to have be so young and you know, at the point where you were just trying to figure out who you were, mm-hmm. you know, going into adulthood and then this career and this person that you trusted. Again, I, I see so many similarities with this, the gymnastics and these young yeah. women. It's it's um it's it's a real it's a real comment on your well, strength and you. your ability. So just when you're kind of coming back to yourself. Mm-hmm. Right. You said you're having Passover. You're at dinner you have a stomach ache. Yeah. So here comes Hoshimo number two, right? So (laughs) so what happens? Yeah, so I mean this you I was leading the Seder and it really felt like one of those empowering moments where you think you're on your way. Rebirth, right? All yes, sorts. there yeah. you go, Passover. And I just had a bad stomach ache that wasn't going away. Um, and I just remember being in really bad pain. And it lasted through the night. It lasted through the next day. You know, I remember lying on my, on my patio the next day, just like waiting for this to subside. Um, and my father came home from work the next day, and he didn't like that my stomach was like distended, which was the first time I'd ever heard that word. Um, And everything else, I just remember going by really quickly. Um, I ended up um, being rushed to the emergency room. I just remember screaming at everyone because I was in so So much much pain. pain. Mm -hmm. And then the rest is what was told to me. You know, I guess I was put out and surgeons cut into my stomach and my stomach literally exploded because there was so much internal pressure. So I had gotten sepsis um, and I was in a coma for months. And that was when the next chapter of my life began. How many months were you in a coma? Was it was it an induced coma or you had fallen into a coma from the procedures? You don't know. I always <laughs> get confused. <laughs> I always ask my dad because I always get asked this. I have no idea. I should know. I should know. And it was a few months. Um, wow. The closest record I have is actually one of my brothers, um, Jeff, uh, when I was in a coma he ended up staying in the ICU and he kept a journal for the first 72 days I was in a coma, wow. which it was very hard to read when I found it eventually because, you know, it starts from day one, April 25th, 2005, where it's like took your stomach out, um, intestines perforated. Um, but what's really beautiful about that, and I incorporated a few excerpts in, into my book, is you see the real you know terror of what was happening and then you see the family kind of make the ICU their kind of new normal and I think that's you know you talk about how important support is um that's really what kept me grounded when I finally did wake up from the coma and it's like oh boy now Amy gets the news (laughs) yeah and what was the news so like so Yeah. yeah so the surgeons waited a little till I was 
fully alert um, because um, I remember kind of foggy memories of waking up from my coma and it was very it was this kind of newborn child sense of wonder like oh I'm coming into the world again so there was that odd fascination um and then dealing with oh my god what are these medical things on me and how did I wake up in that hospital um and then when I was finally kind of conscious and used to the hospital life I guess I still remember the resident came in to my room and he's like hi Amy you know we want to tell you what's been going on and I remember him saying your stomach exploded (laughs) whatever that means and you can't eat or drink now and I remember asking you know when and I just remember Dr. Sam sighing and be like I don't know. And that's the worst. <laughs> I, I asked right. him many times and I got that. And he couldn't guarantee if that would ever happen again or when or even what the next steps were for me. Um, so that was a time where I was like, oh boy, I'm here for an indefinite amount of time. Wasn't I about to go to college? Like, what are the next steps? And dealing with uncertainty for anyone is... Especially at eighteen. <laughs> Especially at eighteen, right? Tough. When you're you're supposed to be graduating and moving on, and you've kind and of just you come hear over. all your friends are graduating high school in a month. Um, and yeah, you, and you're in a hospital trying to figure out if you'll ever eat again. Right. And what does that look like? And how do you? So how? Um, you know, obviously you're standing here, and uh, you know we're we're in your home, and we so we know that there's a good outcome. So <laughs> how how long? I mean, sort of kind of give us a kind of a synopsis of. What did that look like, that physical therapy? And what were the adjustments you had to make? And how did that change? Right. I wish world? I could give you like a quick answer. Oh, there, no. <laughs> no, I know. But I realized that no surgery is a guarantee. Uh, the first thing I wanted to know was, okay, what surgery is needed? How is this going to be fixed? It was devastating for me to hear that there's no like set surgery. We have to kind of figure out if we can find a surgeon who can figure out something to do. So it's not like it's something that happens often, right? Mm-hmm. Were these had, was this a case that these not doctors had often. ever? It it hadn't happened before. It's not like you. So can, you were first. Yep. <laughs> that's also scary. Yeah. Yeah, and so we eventually found a surgeon that could come up with some kind of plan at Yale, and it was a two-part surgery it was the first part was 19 hours wow. and so I first thought I was all done and graduated from sick um three years later um I actually had my first bite of food on my 21st birthday which is oh nicely timed um but then I learned that you know surgeries don't always totally succeed you know my wound exploded and so oh my gosh long story short it you know, between all of the many, you know, 27 surgeries to fix and and refix, um, it turned into about almost seven years uh, without being able to eat or drink combined. Um, so it was it was tough. How are you? F- so I so just for the people who I, yes. I I know a little bit of the answer, but yeah, when people are like, what do you mean you can't eat or drink? How do you live if you can't eat or right. drink? Right, I always forget to right? mention right. that. How so does people that work? freak out. <laughs> yes, no. Um, intravenous nutrition. Uh, it's called TPN, total parental nutrition. Um, is really an amazing invention because it 
goes directly through your bloodstream. You know, because I didn't have any kind of digestive anything. I just had an, an abdominal cavity, so it's not like you could stick a feeding tube anywhere. Right. So this went directly uh, through the ba- veins, which isn't so great for your liver in the long term, but it it got the nutrition into me. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was very important. But that was seven years of dealing with that and just sort of, I'm sure, the awkwardness of, again, you're still young, right? And you're still young, You've like your friends, and it's still a time when you, you're kind of figuring out who you are and you've got this massive... Right. thing going on and now yeah. you can't eat or drink so Awkwardness I'm sure is an understatement. I can't imagine what that would have been like for you especially because I'm not the kind of person who can just kind of crawl in bed and watch movies and so <laughs> I had energy I was feeling good out of the hospital besides being psychologically starving and so my biggest dilemma was okay how can I be part of the world but seeing a water bottle is gonna make me really you know, upset. Yeah. So I had to find ways to to deal with it for, and it's it's easier. I feel like when you know, like, okay, it's only for a month. It's only right. for a week. But just seeing that, oh, we don't know, and having to go on from day to day, that's when creativity really became my best friend. I had to find ways that I could still be engaged in the world in the ways I could. Mm-hmm. Um, so express yourself. So yeah. how did you, so what was your first outlet? So, well, actually let's, let's finish the medical piece because yes. we know. <laughs> so, so eventually after, was it a total of 27 surgeries or how many have you had now? Um, well, I was run over by a car, so now it's 29, oh, but but 20, but just digestive system-wise, 27. Those weren't all at once. My last one was in 2012. So they were to constant. Nothing ever sealed permanently. Uh, things kept opening. Mm. Um, so it was in and out of the hospital while still trying to live my life. Sure. So. Uh, which is, I'm sure, was a huge challenge for you. And you were so, so you're still trying to manage through right but now you're able to you were able to get off of the intravenous nutrition right Mm -hmm. right, and go eventually they felt like they had done enough to be able to allow you to eat and drink is that do you were you are you today i mean are you able to eat and drink normally yes um because of my 27th surgery I lost even more intestines, so I don't absorb everything fully. So we're still trying to find answers. Um, I'm still going to doctors all over the place for intestinal rehabilitation. But I learned a really long time ago that if I ever wait, you know, to start like living until this is all done or that's all done, I'll Never also be. be waiting. So you you got to do your best, you know, with what with what you have, right? Literally, <laughs> yes, right. But now, so what was it like when you were able to finally now? Because I, it's a jumping forward. I'm sitting here with Amy, and she's she's drinking from a cup, so she's eating <laughs> and she's drinking. So it's not all. So I'm sure that that was that felt like you could be a part. I mean, I'm just that little oh social piece must have been huge for you. Things that we take for granted every day. Oh my god, one thing. I didn't realize fully. I mean, we all know this consciously, but food is more than just, you know, for your body. You, It's really an invitation to the world. It, it can open your mind and it allows you to be social and have those experiences. You know, again, something I feel like we all know, but I really got to experience that 
firsthand. Yeah. Like I remember th- this was probably not the appropriate jump to go like to pizza as soon as I did, <laughs> but I was so excited. Wanted a pizza. <laughs> I, so I remember taking my first bite and I remember the first thing I did is I went outside and I called my brother Jeff. Yeah. I'm like, Jeff, you don't get it. I just said pizza. Like I can go out with friends and I can be like, let's have a pizza night or like I can go to a movie and then get pizza or I can have a pizza party. And this was like such a revelation for me. But um, it really felt like, I can be with people now and let my guard down. You know, there's nothing holding me back. Um, That's amazing. I I think it is because it's such a social, it's part of the culture. I mean, you think about these, we just had Thanksgiving, you got the holidays coming. Right. And I'm sure your family felt that too. Like, how do we do this big food sort of centered, centric? situation when you can't participate in it. I'm sure right. it was really hard. Well, we actually, I spend every major holiday in the hospital at one time or another. And I've spent Thanksgiving at Mount Sinai. But the hardest holidays when I couldn't eat were always at home. And I, I read about this in my book that I remember one Thanksgiving that I couldn't eat you know, that's the worst because I would usually like go out and like walk through stores to distract myself. But on Thanksgiving, everything's closed. Like everyone is at home eating. Right. And I remember taking a walk outside with my dad and we were at the beach at that time. So you could hear like silverware on people's plates on the screen doors and like the football games playing. And I remember like asking like, dad, are we ever going to have Thanksgiving again? And, you know, he he couldn't say yes. He didn't know. And, you know, every holiday we have now is definitely a reminder of how great it is to just have that what a gift yeah. right that's it's a good reminder for us all actually yeah. so <laughs> so i know you've turned this into a book and we'll talk about that but you've also created so much i mean in addition to your ted talks and i can imagine given that this you know your your whole medical history even though that's not necessarily the creative part you've turned your i, I i've heard on um Robin Roberts on Good Morning America. I watch this every morning. It's uh-huh. like, you know, it's one of my things. But she always talks about making your mess your message. And oh, you yeah. have Love that. done <laughs> that so clearly with your book. You're doing that with so many of your other artistic outlets. But you're also sharing it. I know you do a lot of speaking, you said. And I, I can imagine that um, not only for companies and, you know, to hear, have somebody like you come and speak and how inspiring it is. And you think you've got a bad look at this and look what she's been able to do despite these things. Mm-hmm. Um, but but at medical conferences and things as well, given that you're a medical marvel, frankly, <laughs> and uh, being able to see you up there, not just alive, but as I say, thriving. Um, are you, do you enjoy sharing? I mean, I know you're sitting here with me, but do you enjoy sharing this and and trying to use this as something that's maybe a teachable moment? Yeah, I I do. It's funny. I talk about my story so much now that people don't realize that for years, for at least 10 years, I didn't even have the words for my story. Um, but actually coming to the point where I could tell it, that was actually a very transformational process for me. So now whoever I speak to, you know, you hear about so much with companies how like storytelling is great for your business or how it helps your life. I've really experienced that firsthand how I don't really feel like I found the message behind what I had been through and could really feel comfortable with my story until I was able to find a way 
to put it into words and frame it as a story. And that process of forming those words took a lot of time. And that was what was so healing for me. So I I love being able to talk to all different kinds of people, whether, you know, they're college students or kids or, or CEOs or right. surgeons, um, for anyone um, in their own life and who they take care of and what they do, why what they've experienced in their life and being able to put that into words is really something that can not get them caught in what's happened to them, but really uh, catapult them forward if they use it in the right way. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Well, you've done this. So you've you've obviously now been able to, in addition to speaking at all these conferences and um, TEDs, of course, but you've written your book, um, touring with that. Yes. But in <laughs> addition, and I, I, I want to reiterate that in case people want to go and get even a deeper story of yours at the end of the podcast here, but um, share with us a little bit about some of the other pieces of art you're creating so theatrically and otherwise yeah so again um it took a while for me to put my story into words um first before I could even get any words in I discovered art which I talk about in my book a lot which was a total accident in the hospital but why visual art was so important for me is It was my first way of getting out my emotions that I could really understand them without being able to articulate them. Um, So that, you know, I'm... I'm selling myself on a bunch of stuff like that, but I'm also leading a lot of workshops for people that aren't creative because I think art is the coolest vehicle uh, to get us to words. Um, then, you know, putting my story together on stage, uh, my one-woman musical, mm-hmm. Gutless and Grateful, that was my first way of putting the events of my story together in a theatrical arc that could show me the message behind what I'd been through and also that people could relate to this arc of going through a a detour in their life um so that really seems to inspire people no matter what they've been through um so I've toured that to theaters to colleges to conferences um and that's always really great to know that people can relate to my story from all walks of life um, and then eventually I I finally put this book together, which really shows why I'm proud of this and it, why it shows something unique that none of my other stuff has done is it gets the perspectives, you know, from my family and from the doctors and, and really from my beginnings and all of the the falls I made and the fails and the triumphs. And yeah, I wanted people to see that it wasn't such a clear, you know, trajectory. And and that resilience was really a learned skill that, that anyone can cultivate. Well, you, Amy, yes, you, um, you, you inspired me hearing your story, <laughs> just um, what you've gone through. But I think it's a huge testament, not just to you, but the support you talked about and having having them um, to be there with you, but also this outlet that you've had. And, you know, it all it all makes sense, right? There was there was a reason, you know, that you had this art and you're now able to take that and do something with it that isn't just an expression, but it's it's really powerful and meaningful. And I think um, in addition to adding something beautiful to the world, it's going to help so many people. Right. Um, well, if, if I can say yes. one thing, you know, having the support, you know, my family, uh, the creative community was great, but I think for anyone, we need to find that support in any ways we can. And the reason why creativity is such a cool thing for anyone is, you know, there are 
there are writings now that show that the original like Greek plays of Sophocles, mm -hmm. those were originally plays meant for military veterans to actually reenact their story for each other and for the community to show, you know what, this is what we went through. So it's been proven over and over since the beginning of time that we need those communal ceremonies to make sense of what we've been through and to share it. So I'd say to anyone, you'll find some way that you can be part of a larger group that where you can express your story and, and share it outward. And it was theater for me, but it could be a lot of things for a lot of people. Well, it's theater, but it's thankfully for those people who might not be able to get to to see your your play and your <laughs> one woman amazing show is that they could go out and Amazon or any of the book platforms yeah. um, get your book. <laughs> so I'm going to reiterate, <laughs> it's My Beautiful Detour, An Unthinkable Journey from Gutless to Grateful, Amy Ostriker. Thank, thank you. you so much for thank sharing you. your story. <laughs> This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.